Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, October 16th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Ronald Reagan bought that microphone. Clint Eastwood interviewed a chair, but Charlie Crist really, really wanted the fan. By now you've heard Democratic challenger Charlie Crist showed up for a governor's debate in Florida with a fan in the podium. The incumbent, Rick Scott, was having none of it. He saw that fan, and then Scott hit the fan, or Rick hit the roof, or something because he wasn't about to come out and discuss the future of his state if his opponent was insisting on a creature comfort. Governor Governor Chris, do do the rules of the debate say that there should be no fan? Not that I'm aware of. By the way, Chris travels everywhere with that fan. He has it on set whenever he does an interview. He plays catch and has that fan nearby. Maybe Scott thought there was a Dumbo's feather type thing going on. Maybe Rick Scott wanted to get Charlie Crist out of his comfort zone. In any case, Rick Scott looked a little petty for wanting Charlie Crist to get a little sweaty. You gotta hand it to the man with the tan from a spray can for executing his plan to stand behind the band fan. On the show today, men trying to put men back in feminist. And the women who say, get the hell out of here. Thanks, bro. Really, get the hell out of here. And in the spiel, USA, USA, eek, a mouse! But first, why, when it comes to voter access, some Republican-appointed justices share Rick Scott's stance on appropriate podium paraphernalia. In other words, not a fan. Every day there seems to be a new ruling on what we could broadly call voter access, which means either requiring voters to show ID at polls, that would be reducing voter access, or allowing more weeks prior to an election for mail-in voting, or day of voting registration, that would be greater voter access. The party of the president who appointed the federal judge ruling on the case is usually interesting and usually pretty predictive. Let's take a couple examples. Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals okayed Wisconsin's voter ID law. This was a law requiring showing driver's licenses. So Diane Sykes, John Daniel Tinder, and Frank Easterbrook, they were appointed by President Ronald Reagan, and Sykes and Tinder were appointed by George W. Bush. So they all voted to okay the law that said you have to show an ID, reduced voter access. Federal judge in North Carolina allowed a Republican-backed state law that curtailed early voting and other opportunities for residents to cast their ballots. The judge, Thomas Schroeder, was appointed by George W. Bush. Ohio wanted to shorten early voting. Three judges from the Sixth Circuit said no. So these judges who were for more voter access, they were all appointed by Democrats. In Texas, federal judge struck down a law requiring voters to show identification. Nelva Gonzalez-Ramos was appointed by President Obama. 
In Arkansas, however, they threw out a restrictive voter ID law. The state Supreme Court there is nonpartisan. And the Supreme Court of the U.S. has weighed in in a few cases, like they blocked the Wisconsin law requiring ID, but they allowed the Carolina law, which made it a little bit harder to vote. So joining me now is Wendy Weiser, the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Hello, Wendy. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So every state has its own rule, and of course, these inevitably get uh, appealed to courts, and sometimes uh, the Court of Appeals, and sometimes the Supreme Court. But are you seeing what I'm seeing, that in general, the Democratic appointees say, no, we want more access to voting, and the Republican appointees, if there is a vote against that, that'll come from Republican appointees? You know, what we're seeing is a, a really highly partisan charged battle over voting rights across the country, and it's been very partisan in the in its legislative inception and even among election officials who are supporting cutbacks to voting rights. Among the judges, it hasn't been as clear a line. Um, it's true that a lot of the Republican appointees have been the ones that have been upholding some of the laws. But those that are actually blocking the laws are both Democratic and Republican appointees. Well, when and you electives. say blocking the laws, you mean blocking the Block- laws that would make it harder yeah, to vote. Blo- blocking yeah. new laws that would make it harder to vote. We're seeing that from both Democratic and Republican appointees. You know, the, the voting rights is, is such a fundamental core value of uh, American law on both the right and the left. And so you, you would expect to see it um, from both Democrats and Republicans. Courts are supposed to be a bulwark against this kind of partisan manipulation of the voting rules. And so it, it's good to see that there are Republicans on that side as well. Right. But on other issues, on death penalty issues, on issues of uh, search and seizure, things that do have a partisan or ideological breakdown. It doesn't seem as stark to me as the voting laws uh, seem to me. Yes, you're right. Some Republicans are ruling against laws that require IDs in some way. And some Republican, we say Republicans, Republican appointed judges are saying no, have a have a longer voting access period. But I have I've yet to come across. I'm not an expert. I just read the newspaper, but I've yet to come across a a judge, a federal judge who's been appointed by a Democrat who said, yeah, less voting. I've yet to come across that. We haven't seen any Democratic-appointed judges upholding um, strict new voting restrictions yet. That's true. And and the partisan divide um, in the judiciary is something that is really concerning. But courts do look at actual, not just theory, they they do look at statistics, right? They do look at social science on occasion. I know the Supreme Court does, some, maybe somewhat controversially. And since there is no voter fraud, I mean, there's, you know, broadly speaking, we could find some cases where people filled out cards with fake names like Mickey Mouse, but there are just as no widespread voter fraud as predicted as these laws have been put into place to try to stop. You know, does that have an effect on the courts? You know, years ago, did we see the courts maybe saying, well, voter fraud's a problem. And now that it's been shown really not to be a problem, are the courts saying, well, it's been shown not to be a problem? I mean, absolutely. I think that there is a fundamental understanding that we don't have a widespread problem of voter fraud. The courts are finding in case after case, even in the cases upholding the law, that, gee, this isn't a really big problem. We already have good protections in place and and the kinds of voter fraud attacked by these laws are minuscule. And I think that that's you know certainly making a difference and in, um, in a number of cases. 
in Texas, for example, the the court that just blocked Texas's um, very restrictive voter ID law last night, late last night, um, found that um, there was virtually no um, in-person voter fraud in Texas. And then, in fact, before the law was passed, there were only two cases of in-person voter fraud over the last decade. And we should note that the federal judge who struck down that law, Nelva Gonzalez-Ramos, appointed by Barack Obama. Again, coincidence, we don't know, but it does seem that you can't find the Democratic judge who upholds these laws even though you can't find a Republican appointed judge who and, but goes to both be, ways. Yeah. To, to be clear, the, the courts recognize, as do we, that protecting against voter fraud is a legitimate and important sure. government interest even. Yeah. You know, but I think the evidence of the lack of voter fraud and the strength of the protections that we already have does strengthen the case that there's something pretextual going on, that this isn't the real reason these laws are being passed. A lot of the laws also bear little to no relationship with their state justification to protect against voter fraud. Right, right. Like, like we 30, take early voting, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah, 28 days versus 35 days. Oh, those are the seven days where voter fraud occurs. That makes no yeah, sense. Yeah. Right. There's no logical connection yeah. between the justification and the restriction at stake. And if we look at the Texas case again, there the court actually found that um, this the law was intentionally discriminatory, actually passed with for the purpose of making how, it how harder for people How would they prove that? How would vote. they demonstrate that? Isn't that like reading motivation into it? That's a very difficult thing to prove, motivation. There's a lot of tools that courts have, and it is one of the things that courts do. And um, in Texas, they looked at a a range of different kinds of evidence. There were statements by legislators about what was going on um, during the process. There were a lot of background facts, social facts um, and data that was presented that um, formed the context (laughs) for the law being passed that helped persuade the judge that it was passed for a discriminatory reason. And and Texas has been found by courts before. Okay. And the last thing, if I were describing this to a friend of mine, say, from another country who might not get the nuances, we could be this deep in the conversation. I can imagine that he'd have a weird look in his eye and say, oh, well, you got to understand one thing. Whenever they have more voting, this has been true for the last uh, decades, whenever they allow it, whenever it's more easy to vote or easier to vote, Democrats benefit. And whenever it's harder to vote, Republicans benefit. This has maybe not been the case for the last hundred years, but definitely for the last couple decades, it's true. Will a court ever acknowledge that? Should a court ever acknowledge that? Or is it always these issues that, I mean, this is the real reason there's a fight. It's a one side gets a partisan gain. But should there ever be an acknowledgement from the bench of that fact? You know, I think that where there's strong evidence that the law is passed for the purpose of achieving partisan gain, it was passed in a way to discriminate against certain groups of voters because of how we think they might vote or who we think they might support, that's not a legitimate justification. Wendy Weiser, the director of the Democracy Program at NYU Law School's Brennan Center for Justice. Thank you so much. Thank you. So in America, we have to be nice about our demands. You know, you go to South Korea, you just say, hey, I want the soup. The guy gives you the soup. You don't even think of asking the waiter. But I think maybe because we're so nice and because we're polite and people don't mind being having demands put on them, that they respond to demands. Also, the internet, also modernity, everything's on demand. You're listening to me when you want to listen to me. I can't really think of anything that's not on demand. We ask for it. We get, wait. I just thought of something. The post office, that entire post office, even the phrase in terms of marketing post office. Like if you didn't know the post office was a place that you buy stamps, would you associate the words post office 
two stamps. It doesn't make that much sense. Post after, you know, you go there after it closed and you can't get any stamps. So I give you stamps.com. I more than give you stamps.com and this idea of stamps.com where you could print at your desk anything that you could buy at the post office where they'll give you a scale and you could weigh any letter or package and print actual postage right there with your own printer. So th- I'm, I'm giving you that idea, but I'm also giving you this special offer. Here goes. If you use the promo code the gist, you qualify for a no risk $110 bonus offer. You get that free digital scale up to $55 in free postage. So we ask that you go to stamps.com right off the bat, go to the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in the gist, and then you will get the free offer. That's stamps.com and enter the gist. Thanks. Feminism. Sure, it's cool, but what about those of us with a Y chromosome? You know, as a guy, I always said, feminism, it seems logical, but it's not really about me. But now I've learned that it is. The boy band One Direction, hoping to one day live up to the promise of such groups as the Rolling Stones and Fugazi and become a man band, posed with the hashtag he for she. That is the hashtag pioneered by Emma Watson. She endorsed it at a UN event, and that got her dubbed amazeballs in some precincts. So now is the time for guys to come out and say, I'm a feminist. Like Aziz Ansari on The Letterman Show. Emma Watson asked, I accepted, I'm a feminist, to which the other kind of feminists, the ones who are women, some of them respond with a go fuck yourself. All right, maybe I'm reading the reactions wrong. Male allies are important except when they're the worst, writes Slate staff writer Amanda Hess. Hello, Amanda. Hi, Mike. What is the problem with men saying, I'm a feminist or endorsing feminism? Uh, It depends what feminist you ask. It can be a variety of things. Mm -hmm. As I wrote in the story, often going one way is terrible and going the other way is terrible to someone else. So what are the ways? So, for example, there are some men in the feminist movement who style themselves as feminist experts. They may claim the name feminism. Some of them become professional feminists, uh, and that can grate on some female feminists. That seems presumptuous. (laughs) But then there are some other men who engage in feminism and say that their feminism is a process, that they are bound to screw up because they are men, and that can grate on some other feminists who think that that gives them a license to say something fucked up sometime. Oh, okay. So you're saying that second time, if they're saying, hey, I'm just a man, I'm just stupid, mm-hmm. then they don't, they're not holding themselves to the you know, high standards that an expert should be held to a standard. Um, you surveyed a couple of professional self-styled feminist men? Or at least men who identify as such? Um, So one who pretty much, he does not call himself a feminist or a male ally, but he works in feminist spaces. Mm -hmm. And another, a guy who I had just seen sort of dipping his toe into some Twitter feminist argument. And one of them said, any struggle I face is about .00001% of the struggle women face in their day-to-day existence. Now that's a lot of zeros. Maybe two more and I'd have believed them. Mm, Or maybe there should have been two fewer. I mean, (laughs) so that I think that statement is a typical example of what I'm talking about, where uh, one reaction to that statement could be, wow, this guy is owning his privilege and that is so refreshing. And the other could be it is super ingratiating for men to, like, continue to announce this all the time. Like, you're a dude. We get it. Okay, but wait. So let's talk about that second feeling. I mean, 
isn't this strain of, I don't know if it's a strain or at least the people expressing that feeling, I mean, do they want a starting off point where they exclude 49% of the world's population from their cause? I think part of the problem is that we don't know what the they is right now. And so as men are being sort of welcomed into feminism at this point in feminism, it's also where feminism has now become a label that Taylor Swift uses. It's something that is still sort of happening in typical spaces like rape crisis centers. It is a lens for viewing the world that I often engage with as a journalist. And then within all of those different spaces, like feminists don't really agree with each other on what feminism even is or how we should be practicing it. And while there are like these mechanisms set up in the discourse to protect women from being too easily, I think, criticized for talking about feminism. So there's a term called tone policing, where if I say something and then someone calls me angry, a common feminist response would be, you are tone policing and women for ages have been criticized for speaking out and are called angry. And uh, so that's not acceptable. But men are sort of easier for us to play out all of these different competing ideas about how feminists should act because we don't really care that much about hurting their feelings. <laughs> right. So you could tone police them because screw you. You're yeah. you're being angry. Yeah. No. Yeah. We can use whatever tone we want. Yeah. You know, as far as the Taylor Swift argument, you know, a very good slate writer, you wrote celebrity feminist identification has reached peak meaninglessness. That was a couple of weeks ago, right? Mm-hmm. But then a couple of years ago in 2012, you're right. Here's one reason some women might not identify as feminists. Whenever they begin to engage with the material, feminists condescendingly dismiss them as more Morons, complete with all caps, maniacal laugh. Hi, Katy Perry. At its most simple definition, all feminism means is that you think that women should be equal to men. Okay, cool. Bye. Jezebel schooled. You know, on the one hand, you're saying, Ugh, everyone's saying they're a feminist. That doesn't mean anything. On the other hand, you're criticizing people who criticize celebrities for saying they're a feminist. I know. It gets weird in here, Mike. <laughs> it gets really weird. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a consistent writer, but I also think that the... Um, Another way to say it up? is you, you contain multitudes. Yeah. Although a man okay. said that, although right. he was a gay man. Don't so tell me how to identify, Mike. <laughs> um, I think what has happened like in those past two years is that all of these prominent feminists from... Taylor Swift to Beyonce to Aziz Ansari are taking that Jezebel definition, which is all it means is that you think men are equal to women. It's not clear if that goal has been reached or if there are specific things we need to do. So let's play Aziz Ansari on Letterman. My girlfriend has influence on me. She uh, she's a big feminist, and uh, you know that made me think about those kind of issues. I'm a feminist as well. Any any feminists here clap? Any people? Now, here's the thing, okay? Now, there's a lot of people that didn't clap, but I, I don't believe you. Because if you look up feminists in the dictionary, it just means someone who believes men and women have equal rights. And I feel like everyone here believes men and women have equal rights, yeah? But, yeah. But I think the reason people don't clap is that word's so weirdly used in our culture. Now people think feminist means, like, some woman's going to start yelling at them. Like... Precious's mom is going to start throwing stuff at you. Like, that's why even some women don't clap. They're like, oh, I don't want that crazy bitch yelling at me. Like, no thank you. So I feel like if you do believe that, if you believe that men and women have equal rights, if someone asks you you're feminist, you have to say yes, because that is how words work. Like, 
You can't be like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm a doctor that uh, primarily does uh, diseases of the skin. Oh, so you're a dermatologist? Oh, no, that's way too aggressive a word. No, 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 not at all, not at all. Yeah, maybe the definition is too low a bar, but what he's trying to do, I love that dermatologist line. He's trying to take back the label. It's true that mentioned Katy Perry before. She's the one who actually said, I'm not a feminist for a male comedian to be doing this. If I were someone who is like deeply identified with the movement, if I were a writer on Slate Double X, I'd just applaud the guy. Yeah, but that's not a very interesting article. I thought you liked disagreement, Mike. That's part of the problem is that we are, if we, we think about the feminist movement in terms of like internet writing, mm-hmm. uh, which is just a slice of it, we're forced to write a lot of stories at a quick pace, but also to like contribute something new. Sure. And so that might be to talk about how parts of his identification are maybe um, raised problems. So if you have a story on Jezebel that says, this is a great thing that he said, like, what is the purpose of someone else writing another thing? Then you quote a sociologist named Chris McComer. She interviewed dozens of men and women who advocate against gendered forms of violence and found endless contradictions. So she looked at the issue of men who identify as feminists, right? Yeah, she looks specifically at rape crisis centers and domestic violence uh, homes and stuff like that. So she writes about a central conflict because men are members of the dominant group. They have access to social and institutional power that women lack. Uh, That makes them valuable to feminism, but it also makes them representatives of a culture feminists are working to change. A simpler way to say this might be men who agree with feminists are good because they agree with feminists, but they're bad because they're men. Yes. That seems problematic (laughs) to me. Oh, man, it's all problematic. (laughs) Welcome to feminism. Do even the people at the tip of the feminist spear realize that I'm sure they do, but what do they think about the fact that sexism has a lot fewer barriers to entry and sexism is like really welcoming and frictionless and just easier and less of a headache to fall into than the, you know, fraught fights that they're having? Yeah, I think they do. So in her dissertation, Chris McComer wrote about this sort of split that happened in the men's movement in the 1970s. So after the that sort of stage of the feminist movement, men started getting together and saying sexism affects men, too. And let's talk about like how gender affects men. And then they split into a pro-feminist camp, which on the academic side you might call men's studies, mm-hmm. and an anti-feminist camp, which as activists they would be called men's rights activists. In academia, they are they study male rights. Mm-hmm. If you think of a baby male ally, some teenage kid or 20-year-old kid who is starting to realize like what gender is and how it might yeah. affect him, I think he's really on this razor wire between becoming a men's rights activist and becoming like a feminist sympathizer. Amanda Hess, staff writer of Slate, the latest article, and, you know, most of your articles spark something in me, but I thought this one was great. Male allies are important except when they're the worst. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. American greatness and American scaredy-catism. America. Land of the free, home of the brave, the greatest country on earth. That's subjective, but largely defensible. The most powerful nation the world has ever known. That is actually empirically true. The great shining city on a hill, the one essential country. Well, you take it, Ron. It is time for us to realize that we're too great a nation to limit ourselves to small dreams. We are great. We are proud. Ah! Ah! It's a mouse! No, I saw it! It ran under the couch! I don't know, it's like a little brown thing! No! 
okay, it wasn't a mouse. It was Ebola. It could have been ISIS. It could have been high gas prices. It could be any other calamity or trouble that we've yet to conceive of. But something is always there to scare us, to threaten us. And it seems like those with their chests most puffed out and their bald eagle belt buckles most brightly burnished, they're the first to cower, to shriek, to shake their heads at America's inability to overcome. Would Ronald Reagan have cowered? The line I quoted, that was from his first inaugural. Here's the woman who wrote the lines to his farewell. In between, that speechwriter Peggy Noonan also wrote that the future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. But on CBS's Face the Nation, here's what she was saying about the current president. Ebola, ISIS, etc. It seems to me part of the competence question is connected to the word candor. I do think the American people hear the government talk, and it incessantly talks, and it talks in a concentrated way from a few people in the White House as they hold on to their sort of concentrated power. But there is a lack of a sense in so many of these stories that you are getting it straight, that they are telling you really what they know, that they're telling you what you can do. There's always a sense, especially with the Ebola thing, that they're trying to keep you calm. And it has that patronizing sound of, we don't want you little people to get nervous. Look, nobody wants the American public to get nervous, but we would all be less nervous if we had a sense we were getting it straight from our governmental bodies. I have a question for Peggy Noonan. And my question will not waft toward your ears whispererily. I will state it boldly. And for our younger listeners, you may want to turn off the pod right now. Because the second and third words of this question that I am about to ask are the words, the fuck. And here is the question. What the fuck? What the fuck are you talking about, Peggy Noonan? What is the government withholding about Ebola? What run for the hills message are you implying that they're sitting on? Hey, if you want to say the government underplays the severity of ISIS or blew the evil of Putin, we could debate that. But what are you implying that the government isn't telling us about Ebola? And why are you implying it? Ebola is a deadly disease, and we're deadly serious about attacking it. There have been screw-ups. There have been potentially life-threatening mistakes. So far, there's one man dead. Two are infected that we know of. Two have been cured. Now, I can't tell you how upset I am by the screw-ups of Dallas Presbyterian Hospital. Yes, I can tell you. I told you yesterday in the spiel. But we're a nation of 319 million people. Two of those people that we know about currently have Ebola. I'm not diminishing how dangerous it is. I'm just asserting that we're up to this challenge. Why do I say this? Well, do you realize that Nigeria fought back Ebola? Nigeria, average salary of about $8 a day, with the 11th highest infant mortality rate in the world, beat the outbreak. Here's an on-the-media interview with Liberian journalist Rodney Sia. Nigeria, where a Liberian American took the virus to, managed to, as of two weeks ago, declared himself Ebola-free. You know how they did that? They did that by quarantining. They did that by containing. They did that by contact tracing. Senegal did too. In Senegal, one case came from neighboring Guinea. That person was quarantined, contact traced, and nipped right away. In Liberia, we do not have that speed, that precision. 
If you listen to Doctors Without Borders, you'll find them praising Cameroon for their advanced treatment protocols. If Nigeria, Senegal, Cameroon can be Ebola-free, I think so can the USA. There seems to be no middle ground between, eh, it's not a threat, and be afraid, be very afraid. I understand it's less than two weeks until an election. I understand that stoking fear and uncertainty helps challengers, helps TV ratings, and the downside to predicting disaster only works if we remember who got it right and who got it wrong. So let's climb off the collective couch of calamity and walk bravely upon the steadfast area rug of determination. Oh my God, I'm terrible at soaring rhetoric. Let's yield to the master. Together, with God's help, we can and will resolve the problems which now confront us. And after all, why shouldn't we believe that? We are Americans. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi insists on an old-fashioned icebox and a thermos of Lipton cup of soup at her workstation. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has a rider in his contract which necessitates the presence of leg warmers in, quote, no fewer than five electric colors to be stocked at the foot of his desk each Thursday. And because it's a National Boss Day, we did it today, boss. You can subscribe on iTunes, give us a listen on Stitcher, get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We're on Yo. You download that app and subscribe to podcasts. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. And now the pledge drive. Tomorrow is the Antan Twig, the three-week anniversary since the last Antan Twig. I will be awarding a lop star to the person who subscribes a friend to the gist. Now, I want to explain why we're doing this. Specifically, I have yet to explain this. iTunes has a rankings algorithm. So when you go to iTunes and you see the 10, 20 most popular shows, that doesn't mean the 20 shows that were most downloaded. It has to do with how recently shows were added, how often they're reviewed. So what we want to do is put our show up high. That makes sense. It's not gaming the system. It's knowing what iTunes wants, which is to get a lot of recent downloads and to have that reflected in the ratings. So how has this pledge drive been going? Well, we were in the 50s, I think, in terms of overall shows. We're like three or four, sometimes as high as two, one or two on the news and information podcast category. Serial is now the new number one. Hard to beat Serial. But we were in the 50s before we started the pledge drive, and then we started asking you to get a friend's device and subscribe them to iTunes. And guess what? We're in the 20s now. So it totally is working. You're totally doing it. I'm only going to casually every now and then ask you to do this. So this is why we've taken your time up with this pledge drive. But I hope that by explaining it, you understand what our motivation is. Thanks for that. And I also want to note that I have it written into all my contracts that I be fanned by a palm frond of no more than 3,000 square centimeters, but no fewer than 2,800 square centimeters. It must be plucked from a non-deciduous tree and operated by a boy named no less than Pablo, but no more than Connor, because I am flexible. Thanks for listening.